Well, we are going to go into our scripture reading today, which comes from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. We're going to read that in the NIV. You can find that in your pew Bibles or behind me. Uh, Also, feel free to look up uh, the scripture uh, in your own Bibles or if you brought, uh, if you have a Bible app on your phone or device. And please stand as able once you're prepared to read the scripture. We will do an alternate reading, which means I'll read the first verse. Well, I'll respond with the verse after that. Yeah, you can stand. (laughs) Again, it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. May the Lord bless the reading of God's word. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil, this is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, this is part five in our sermon series, Truth Is, and today's message is called, You Are Not the Exception. Friends, I wanted to share uh, a few years back, um, so this was about six years ago. Um, I, I mean, I've suffered from depression in many different forms throughout my adulthood, but about six years ago, I fell in, into one of the more profound funks that I've had in my life. It was a pretty hard time. And what's funny about it is that it all started with a compliment. So what happened was about six years ago, I had a friend of mine uh, who was the praise leader at a mega church. Uh, so the church has about 2,000 people there. And she came to visit uh, me in Ann Arbor and came to LGM for Sunday worship. And after uh, the service, we went out to lunch. And she asked me this question. And this is the question that sort of precipitated my spiral. Right? She asked this simple question. She said, Steve, what are you doing here? And what she, she proceeded to explain. I was like, what do you mean? She said, Steve, I heard you preach. You got skills. You know, and, and she serves at a megachurch with 2,000 people. She's like, you know, you're just as good as the pastors there. And I did this thing where I'm like, oh, you know, no, whatever, you know, like, oh, it's okay, don't say that. And she's like, no, no, seriously, you have skills. Like, seriously, what are you doing here? You're being wasted here. You know, you're at this small church where you could be serving thousands. And so, you know, again, I did that thing of like, oh, no, God has called me to be here. You know, it's okay. You know, this is, it's okay if you serve one or you serve a thousand. But that conversation started something in me. There was this seed that was planted where I started to be really discontent. I started to wonder. I was like, oh, maybe, 
I should be doing more. And the thing is, I had heard many messages, you know, some from the world, some from the church that had told me, you know what? You are supposed to be extraordinary. You're supposed to do big things in this world. You know, there's actually a, a, a church in Australia called Planet Shakers, you know, and I've heard many messages from pastors that talk about, you know, you're supposed to be a world changer. You know, God has chosen you to make a big impact. This word impact is something that I felt like I was supposed to do. You know, and so I had the fantasy, like a lot of pastors, that I was going to be the pastor of some big church. You know, I was going to write books like Tim Keller or John Piper, and millions of people would read them. And I thought to myself, I want to be this kind of pastor. I want to have this kind of impact. And what my friend was telling me is you could, but the problem is you're stuck here. (laughs) And the thing was, at the time, um, this church couldn't afford to keep me full-time, and so uh, I was only being paid 50% of my salary from this church. And so I started to serve at another church, uh, this church, St. Matthew's, and it was a church that had been struggling for 20 years. It was kind of depressing. Just every week, you know, you'd see less and less people. People were literally dying because the people were really old at that church. And so I'm stuck between two churches. My time is split. And to be honest, there were some struggles that LGM was going through. And I felt like I couldn't fully invest my time in either church. And here I am at the small church. And, you know, I I started to wonder, maybe I'm meant for greater things, right? And so I started looking at, you know, uh, websites. So again, this is about six years ago, friends. Uh, I hope you don't think I'm doing this now. (laughs) But I was like looking at church, you know, job websites and looking at jobs at megachurches. And I got even more depressed because all these churches, they're like, oh yeah, a church has uh, average attendance 5,000. They're like, in order to apply for this job, you must have experience in a church that has an average of uh, attendance of at least 2,000. I'm like, what the heck? I'm never going to be able to serve in a church like that. You know, and so it just kept, you know, spiraling. And I just want to show you this, this website uh, because there are a lot of articles like this. I'm not the only pastor who felt this way, who felt the shame of being at um, a small church. And so this uh, article is about trying to get over that shame, how I stopped feeling embarrassed by my small church. But, you know, uh, another thing that um, is sort of interesting about all this is that, well, all the people you hear from really are people at big churches. You know, think about it. Think about all the books that are being published, Christian books, right? They're always written by, pretty much, uh, pastors of big churches. And there's a reason for this. Because I looked into it, because I wanted to be an author, right? So (laughs) I looked into it, and they're like, if you are not a pastor of a big church, don't even bother applying to a publisher. Why? Because you need what is called a platform, right? So they want to sell books, They don't care how good your ideas are, right? If you have a good idea, well, that's not good enough. There's lots of people who have good ideas. How do you sift through all those people? Well, if you have a big church, then it's likely people know your name. And not only that, but at the very least, if no one else buys your book, the people at your church will buy your book, right? So if you have 5,000 people at your church, that's 5,000 copies of the book that could potentially be sold. And then, you know, word of mouth spreads, you tell your friends and all that. Right? You have a built-in platform. And so a lot of these pastors will talk about how to be a pastor like them, how to be a pastor of a big church. Remember reading these books where they talk about, oh, 
See, your problem is you don't have enough vision. See, your problem is you, you have a small church mindset, right? And I remember I was profoundly depressed by that. And the funny thing is that it's not just about churches. You know, if anything, in the church world, that's probably the last place you would expect it to be, right? Where this, this idea of having to be the best or having to, you know, be in the biggest church with the, the biggest offerings and the biggest attendance, you would think that pastors would be immune to this. So think about the world then, how much we are impacted by this mindset. And so what I call this, this mindset, is uh, the Ricky Bobby myth. Have you guys ever seen uh, the movie or heard of this movie? Uh, it's called The Ballad of Ricky, well, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. It's a really silly movie, came out a few years ago with Will Ferrell. And it's about this guy who becomes a NASCAR driver, race car driver. And what influences his life, what impacts him, is when he was a small kid, uh, this is how the movie begins. Um, his father is this deadbeat. Uh, he races cars, but he's not very good at it. But he becomes like a criminal, stealing cars and things like that. And on the day that his father gets arrested, um, happens to be Ricky Bobby's uh, uh, career day. And so the fathers are coming in, talking about what they do. Speaking of Father's Day, right? Uh, but the fathers come in, talk about what they do. And so Ricky Bobby's uh, dad shows up drunk and high and evading the police. And as he's bearing, being carried off in handcuffs, the last thing he says to his son he just says, son, always remember, if you're not first, you're last. If you're not first, you're last. And this becomes sort of the catchphrase of Ricky Bobby's life, is he becomes obsessed with being the very best. And so this is what drives him to become a successful driver. And he becomes the best at it. You know, and he only has the best. He only eats the best. He only marries the best. And it starts to... Uh, wear away at his life because he's so obsessed with being the best that he starts to discard friendships because of it. That he ends up stepping on one of his best friends because he's so obsessed with being the best. And it, it ends up in, you know, not that I'm going to tell you about the whole movie. There's not time for that. But <laughs> what ends up happening is his life is left in ruins. And when he's on the bottom, he reconnects with his father. And he confronts his father. He's like, hey, I just try to do what you told me to do. And he's like, oh, what is that, son? So his father's like, like sober now, right? And he says, well, you told me that if I'm not first, I'm last. He's like, I said that? He's like, yeah, that's the last thing you said to me. And I've been living my whole life on that. He's like, son, I was high. He's like, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. Well, for one thing, it's not even true, right? If you're not first, you're last. He's like, well, if you're not first, you can be second, you can be third, you can be fourth. It doesn't even make sense. And he's like, oh my gosh, I've been living my life on this. You know, and friends, it makes for a funny story and a funny movie, but I think that there is something about this, this idea that we must be exceptional. This is an idea that gets transmitted to us. You must be good, special, the best. And if you're not, then your life is worthless. So one of the worst things that we're, we're told nowadays, what is the worst thing you can be? Not being the worst at something. The worst thing for us nowadays is to be mediocre, right? This idea that being mediocre. Now, friends, what is mediocre? It means you're average. So if you just take the general population, right, of everyone, if you take everyone in this room, 
there's some of us who are going to be average, right? Why? Statistically, that's just the way it works, right? So the thing that Ricky Bobby's father was saying is that it's impossible for everyone to be first. Because if everyone was first, then all of a sudden we would become average again, right? It's just the way math works, right? So the the reality is, is that most of us will be average in life, but we are always told that this is the worst thing that can happen to you. And what happens is that we live into that. We believe that. I was reading this book by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath. And they were talking about this phenomenal thing where um, they, they did the study of students and that they took students at Harvard. Now, Harvard is, you know, by many metrics, the, the best college, right? It's like the most difficult to get into. And everyone there is ridiculously smart, Right? And if you get the person at the bottom of Harvard, that most of those people are going to be better than the top 50% at any college, right? Isn't it just true, right? The average scores are much higher. So if you take the bottom of the people at Harvard, they should be better than most people at any other college, just about, right? But what they found is that the people at the bottom at Harvard are the same as the people at the bottom of any other school. It doesn't matter what school it is. It could be Eastern Michigan. And what they found is that those people, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. The way we think about some schools, right? And so what they found is that the people at the bar- bottom of Harvard fail just as much at, as all these other schools. They don't do as well as people who have similar test scores at an average, so-called average university. Why? Why is that? Because they feel like a failure relative to everyone else at Harvard. So this is the thing. They came from a school where they were the best. And all of a sudden, they go to Harvard and they're average or below average. And so that makes them depressed. And because they're depressed, they fail. Right? And it's this crazy thing. Right? It's something that doesn't make sense. But this idea of being mediocre or average is something that is just really catastrophic to people. It's something that we can't take, you know? And so um, where does this come from, friends? Uh, One of the areas where this comes from is social media. Well, just any media. You know, think about it, friends. When you look at your Facebook feed, what do you see? We can go to that Facebook photo. Sorry, it's further down, right? When you scroll through your Facebook feed and everyone you ever knew is doing better than you, right? (laughs) You know, this is the thing with Facebook is that... um, By the way, the way your Facebook feed is designed, right? And this is the default setting. You can change it, but I found this out. Facebook will switch it back after some time, right? So you can switch it to the latest posts, right? You can put that setting in. I want to see the newest posts that come up. But after some time, it will switch back to the default, which is what? What is the default for a a Facebook feed? What are the posts that you are going to see at the top? the most popular, the ones that get the most likes, right? What are you going to see? You are going to see the most spectacular posts. And what do people post on on social media? Now, some people post stupid things, right? They're like, hey, this is my lunch this morning. (laughs) It's just like a plain piece of toast. But nobody's going to like that post. It gets buried, right? What are the ones that come to the top? My son got into Harvard. Woo! Oh my gosh, I just got a book deal. Oh, my cousin is a K-pop star. All the spectacular stuff. It rises to the top. And this is what you see. You see people succeeding. 
You see people who are happy. Look at my vacation. Look how beautiful it is. You don't see the vacation that people spend in Louisville, Kentucky, right? With very average food, very average looking people, right? You see the beautiful beaches of Aruba. You see Hawaii. This is what rises to the top of your Facebook feed. And so many of us, we look at that and subconsciously we're looking at it and we're comparing ourselves to it. Look at how spectacular their lives are. Look at how great their vacations are. Look at how great their academic careers are. And I hear people say this all the time. When someone can't get a job, like, Pastor Steve, I'm so depressed because I look on Facebook and all my friends have jobs. Pastor Steve, I'm so depressed because I'm single. When I look at my Facebook feed, all my friends are getting married, right? And they're all happy because, again, what happens, right? Nobody posts, well, some people do, but it gets buried, right? I'm lonely or (laughs) it's been 60 weeks without a date, right? That doesn't get a million likes, right? What gets a million likes? Just got married. Look at these gorgeous photos from our professional photographer. Like, 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 like. Gets put to the top of your feed and, oh, I'm so lonely. I'm not like them, right? And this is the way social media lies to us is we think that our lives must be spectacular, And so not only that, but friends, when you believe that your life is supposed to be spectacular, now, statistically, it probably won't be. That's why this message is titled, You Are Not the Exception, right? And another thing about social media and about media in general is there are some amazing stories about people who succeed. And those stories are so popular. You hear those stories about like prodigies, or people who like, you know, got some amazing job. In the pastor world, there's stories like this too. I had a friend who served at a church much like LGM. This story jacked me up, by the way, just to be honest. Uh, But I I have a friend who, uh, you know, this is the exception. There's not a lot of pastors like this. But he served at a church just like LGM, just about the same number of people. And he was a youth pastor for many years. And he got really burnt out, went to New York, and was serving at this church as an intern. He wasn't getting paid anything. And it just so happened that the pastor, the youth pastor at this really large church um, had to take a sudden leave, and they were desperate. So they're looking around amongst their pastoral interns, and they're like, oh my gosh, we need to fill this spot immediately. Do any of you have experience being a youth pastor? He's like, oh, actually, I do. And so he became a pastor of this very large church, didn't know what he was doing, but did it for about a year. And so, you know, after a while, they hired somebody much more qualified, right? But then he leaves that that position as an intern, he's looking for jobs, and there's this very big church in California, huge church, one of the best churches. I mean, it's a church with like, it's a celebrity pastor, he gets asked to speak at all these huge conferences, all the pastors that I know, all the Asian American pastors I know want to serve at this church, and he applies for the job. Somebody's like, hey, why not? Why don't you just try? It's like, oh, I'm not qualified. And he ends up going through a grueling interview process. It comes down to him and a guy who's much more qualified than him. They interview both, they pray about it, and he ends up getting the job, right? And, and I remember I, I, I asked him, so I ended up calling this guy out of the blue. We're not even that good friends, but I'm like, how did you do it, man? How did you do it? And he was like, Steve, I'm just being honest. I got really lucky. He said, I'm the exception. This never happens. But that's not how I heard it, right? But I'm like, no, but it happens, right? It happened to you. 
this could happen to me, right? Friends, do you ever see things like that? Do you ever hear stories like that of people who have this just crazy amount of success, right? Maybe there's some hotshot at your job who he's like younger than everyone else. He's 25 years old, but he's an executive. All the other executives are 60 plus, but this guy's been working in the company for one year. He just shot to the top, right? We look at that one exception. We say, I must be that. You look at that one person in your friend group who gets into Harvard, who gets some ridiculous scholarship. You know, they're paying that person to go to their school, you know? And maybe your parents look at that and say, hey, why aren't you like that? And friends, the thing is that they're an exception for, the, for a reason. Exception means it hardly ever happens. It's rare. But what happens in a world where we're all told, you're supposed to be the exception. If you're average, if you're mediocre, that's the worst possible thing. You must be the best. What's going to happen is you're going to get a bunch of people who are misinformed on two points. One, you're going to be misinformed on how frequent this happens, how rare it is. And that expectation that I should be the exception. That's a lot of us, friends. We live in a culture that lauds the exceptional. But the second thing is you are going to be very, very um, misinformed on how the process usually goes. And it's on the second point that I want to go into the scripture. So let's take a look at Ecclesiastes. And it's going to address this right from the top. Everything has a season. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So what is a season, friends? A season is amount of time that is required for something to happen. Now, it's not in every uh, part of the world, right? But in some parts of the world, like our part of the world, um, most seasons are equal, right? You get about, what, three months for each. And you can very predictably, each season starts on the 21st. Now, give or take a few weeks, but at the same time, seasons are very predictable, And it takes a certain amount of time for something to happen. And so the problem with thinking you are the exception is that you think you can skip seasons. You think you can skip the natural flow of things because you see the exceptions out there and you say, I want to be that exception. But friends, you don't always want to be the exception. When the exceptions happen, when seasons get skipped, it actually can affect things catastrophically. So let let me tell you about a time when a season got skipped. So this was um, Michigan in 2012. Uh, I remember I went on a field trip uh, to pick apples with uh, Elise when she was in kindergarten. She was in kindergarten in 2012. We went to the apple orchard, and they taught us how apples were made and how they got pollinated by the bees and all this stuff. And then we're like, okay, you ready to pick apples? And they're like, and we're like, yeah. And they're like, well, the problem is there are no apples to be picked. And we're like, what? They're like, yeah, we have no apples in Michigan. Does anyone remember this? This was five years ago. So what happened was, if you remember, what happened? The season got skipped in a way. So it could be global warming. I don't know what it is, but it's a very, very rare event. But in February, we had this massive warm-up. It was 60 degrees in February. That never happens in Michigan, right? And because it was 60 degrees in February, the trees got fooled, and they started to bud, and they started to produce their fruit. Now, the problem is, because it's Michigan, it wouldn't stay 60 degrees forever. And in March, it froze. And all those trees that started to bud, they all lost their fruit. It withered and died. And I didn't know this, but once that fruit is gone, 
you got to wait a whole nother year for it to be produced again. That was it, one and done. And so some estimates is that in Michigan, they lost somewhere between 85 to 90% of their fruit crops. And this is an article in 2015. This is a guy pointing to a tree. And what's remarkable about this, this picture is there's no fruit there, right? And even five years later, they're still recovering economically. And in this article, one of the things they said is they said, we hope we never have a 2012 again, right? You must have regular seasons or there are consequences. Things take a certain amount of time. And then we, we look at uh, uh, the scripture. It goes on to say when it talks about the seasons, it says there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted unless you skip a season and then you won't be able to pluck up anything. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Friends, this is part of the problem with a lot of us is we like the time where we are succeeding, but we don't like the time of failing. But this is a part of the rhythm of life. This is a part of seasons, is you will fail in your life. You will struggle. If you want to be good at anything, you will have to go through a season where you're not good at it, right? A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And so friends, um, you know, uh, there's this question that gets asked when you're young, you know, and it's a question that happens when you're in the car, right? Uh, So when you're on your way to a destination, what do the kids ask usually? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? My kids do this and we're like, oh my gosh, stop. It's so annoying, right? And when I was a youth group pastor pretty exclusively, and back in the day, I used to drive people around to a lot of different places. We go to amusement parks. We go on mission trips. And back in the day, back in my day, friends, I'm going to sound old, but we didn't have GPS, right? Now, GPS, this question doesn't really apply anymore. But back in the day, you just had paper maps or the very best map quest, right? And it wasn't always accurate. And what people would always ask is, it was a more sophisticated version of, are we there yet? What, what does the question morph into? How much longer? How much longer? How much longer? How much? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like stop asking that question. And I would usually like give kind of a cheeky answer. I would say, it's going to take between one second and 1,000 hours, right? And, and, or, or, you know, when I was being less cheeky, I would give them this answer. And this is the truth. And friends, this may not seem profound. This may seem like, duh, this is common sense. But I would say, it's going to take as long as it takes, right? As long as it takes and no longer and no less, right? No matter what I do, this is what kids can't understand. What my five-year-old and nine-year-old can't understand. They say, are we there yet? And we're like, no, we're not. Because where we're going to Cincinnati, it takes, it's about 300 miles. We can't just warp there, right? See, Elise, Sydney, see, a car travels about 60 miles an hour. In order to dra- travel 300, of course I don't say that. They don't understand that, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that it's going to take as long as it takes. And when you try to skip things, things warp. When you try to skip a season, things warp. This is one of the lessons you learn if you've ever tried to cook or bake. Um, I, I have a picture of muffins that we're going to show. Uh, do you guys ever watch like, like shows like Chopped? 
or like on Food Network, right? These shows where they're supposed to cook something very quickly. And one of the things that you see a lot of the young bakers or, or, or cooks and chefs, one of the main mistakes they make is, and you'll hear the older chefs, like they always have like commentary. They're like, oh, I'm going to make a souffle or I'm going to make this thing. And you hear the older experienced people say, they're not going to have enough time, right? They know to make a souffle, to make a cake, to make whatever, it takes a certain amount of time. And I remember watching this one episode. There was this young, hot shot. Uh, he was like a celebrity chef. And he just was very confident in his abilities. He was like, I'm going to make this cake, right? And all the, the, the older experienced chefs were like, he's not going to have enough time. And one of the silly things was he put the cake in, and he got impatient, so he kept opening the oven to check on his cake. Right? And the older chefs are like, what is he doing? Every time he opens the oven, he's letting heat out. Right? There is a right way to do this. And so no matter how much he willed it, no matter how much he wanted that to happen, it took a certain amount of time for that cake to bake. There's no skipping it. There is no fast-forwarding that process, friends. And that is the case for many of our lives. Friends, for me, I wanted to be the exception so many times in my life. As a pastor, as a writer, as a, you know, a, a person you know, who just wants to do great things in this world. You know, I, I shared this before, but I want to go in a little bit more detail about my failure in this. <laughs> I've shared before that I tried to write a book, right? Because I told you I wanted to be an author. And I got this idea to write this fiction book that would combine all of my likes, like the Bible and Christianity uh, with like superheroes. And I wrote this like, like crazy story. You know, and I remember it it took me about two years to write this book. And it was a struggle. It was so hard. It was one of the hardest things I ever did. And I remember so many times I was reading all these books about how you write a book. And one of the most impactful books that I, I read said something I absolutely did not want to hear. And what they said is your first book, Almost Parnon, is going to be terrible. Right? And I've read this from so many authors. They're like, my first book was awful. It should not see the light of day. I wanted to burn that thing. I have it like tucked away in some, some you know, drawers that no one can ever read this. It's so awful. But I did not want to believe that. I read all these stories, which by the way are the exception, not the rule, about some teacher in England who just on the way on a train just started to, to whimsically think about the story of some sorcerer. Right? And by the time she was done on that train ride, which, by the way, is not the full story, but by the time she was done with that train ride, she had the bare-bones version of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Went on to sell a bajillion copies, right? Literally, a bajillion, right? Not literally, but you know what I mean, right? One of the most successful books of all time. This inexperienced school teacher, so we say. Like, it's a much more complicated story, but this is the story we hear. That's the story we fall in love with. We don't fall in love with the 99% of authors whose first book sucks. And so what happens? I write this book, and I remember people are saying like, oh, you got to take time to polish it. And I went over it about 20 times. They're like, oh, you you think you went over it 20 times? You got to go over it 30 times. But I'm like, no, I I, I just don't want to wait any longer. I'm going to submit this to publishers. And I did, and I got rejected. And I heard all these stories, and most of the stories say that on average that, you know, first-time authors, they get uh, rejected like something like a hundred times. I got rejected five times, and I couldn't take it anymore, so I stopped, right? So I self-published, right? 
Now, if you self-publish, most people self-publish, 99% of people who self-publish, something like that, sell less than 100 copies. But, but you hear about these exceptions, right? Very, very few people, but it happens. There are these people who sell millions of copies of self-published books. I'm like, ah, oh, I'm going to be that. I think I've sold maybe nine copies of the book. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I bought three of them, um, you know? <laughs> so do the math. You know, it was a failure. It was not very good. Why? Was it because I suck as a writer? Well, yeah. <laughs> but why do I suck as a writer? Because everyone sucks as a writer on their first book. I'm not the exception. I'm not. There's some of you who have tried something and you've tried to skip the line. And when you skip the line, when you try to be the exception to it, you apply to a job you were not qualified for. You try to do something that people your age normally don't get to do. You tried and you failed. How did you feel? Were you like, well, you know what? I'm not the exception. You probably felt the way that those exceptional students, because they were exceptional, felt at Harvard when they failed. You felt the way that all failures feel. You felt like crap. You felt like, I suck. I'm horrible at this. I tried this thing. I aimed for the stars like all these other stories, all these other people on social media who make it, and I went crash landing. Why? Because you're not the exception, friends. It's not because you're horrible. It's because there's a process involved. If I want to become a great writer, it's going to take much more than one book. I'm going to have to invest thousands of hours into learning the craft. You know, if you want to be good at something, you cannot skip the line. There is a natural process. And some of us are like, oh, man, Pastor Steve, this is hard. Yeah, it's hard. But you are not the exception. And it tells us that in Scripture. And it tells us, first and foremost, well, is it worth it than what you're doing? Because it's going to take time. Anything that is worthwhile is going to take time. So it goes on to say, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now, friends, we've been talking about toil. We've been talking about work and how work can be hard. It can be frustrating. It can be difficult. The end result can feel frustrating. But one of the profound things that it tells us in that scripture, it says, yes, what does man have to gain from their toil? Yes, it can be hard, right? We're busy with all this stuff. But it also tells us God has made everything beautiful in It's time, in its proper time. You cannot skip that line. You cannot speed it up. You cannot cheat. You are not the exception. I almost called this this sermon, and and I thought it was a little too harsh. I almost called it, you are not special. (laughs) Because we're all told we're special, right? We're all told we're special from the time we're young. And friends, it's true, you are special. But are you that much more special than the person next to you? No. So statistically, that makes us all, well, it makes us about average, doesn't it? Most of us, right? Most of us, we fall into a similar range. And that's not a bad thing, right? Does it take you longer than someone else to learn something? Well, maybe. Maybe you're an average learner. But that can be a beautiful thing. God has created a rhythm in a season for everything. God has made everything beautiful in its time. And I used to be so frustrated at being bad at something. It seriously would make me want to stop. This is why 
the, the bottom of the barrel at Harvard, they drop out or they switch majors or they think of themselves as failures because nobody likes not being good at something. I'm the same way. When I'm not good at something, I want to quit. When only five people bought my book, I stopped writing. Why? Because I felt like a failure, right? But God makes everything beautiful in its time. And it goes on to say, also he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is another thing, friends, about the way we work. Now, we've talked a lot about work. We've talked a lot about the process. And this message is not about us just learning to do things and to be better at it. I mean, it's a good message, and that's just applicable to your life. I hope you learn that. There's a proper way to learn things and to get better at things and to improve at things, and you cannot skip the line. It's a very, very humbling but important message in life. But there's another point, too, that some of us, we can say, okay, you know what? I'm just going to become content with being average. And that's not also the full story either because it says God has put eternity into man's heart. We are made for something more. We are made for meaning. That meaning and to do the meaningful things, it's gonna take time. But God has put eternity into our hearts. God has put the desire for something that is lasting. And then uh, kind of the conclusion of this part of the chapter, it says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do, to, good, to do good as long as they live. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor does anything take away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Friends, there is this idea of us learning to enjoy the process. We are people of process. Um, we were talking last week about enjoying the toil. You cannot skip the line. But the process sometimes is what is enjoyable in the first place. Um, there's this movie uh, called Click that came out years ago. It's actually not a very good movie, but the point of the movie I thought was pretty good. What it was is about a guy who finds a universal remote. You guys know universal remotes? It's like you, you have one remote that works your VCR and your DVR and, and your uh, TV and your sound system, right? And so the idea of it was that he found a universal remote that controls the universe, like everything. And so what he found he could do is he could fast forward through all the uncomfortable parts of his life, right? So anytime like the baby was crying, you know, and it needed the diaper change, he could just fast forward and then get to the point in his life where the diaper is clean. He's like, oh my gosh, that's so great, you know? I didn't have to go through all that mess and all that toil, right? And so what ends up happening in the end is that his, he's completely estranged from his family, so he's lived his life, he's old, and then his family comes up to him and he's like on the verge of dying and they're like, you know what? We are going to kind of miss you, but honestly, you were never really here anyways. And so what you see is throughout the movie, it was like kind of a cool trick. He got to fast forward through all the areas of his life, right, that were difficult. But they go back and show you what it looked like to the family when he was fast forwarding through those parts. When a kid is screaming, he's just like, there. And the time passes, but he's not fully there. They're like, Dad, Dad, what's going on? And he's just watching TV or, you know, scrolling through his phone. He's not fully there. And this is the way he lives his entire life. And at the end, he's like, what is it worth? What is it worth if I didn't actually get to experience it? 
And this is a part of life, friends, is the toil, is the process, and learning to enjoy that and to see that from the hand of God. I shared this last week, but it's the truth. The things that you will enjoy, the things that you will remember, the things that make something memorable oftentimes are the struggle and process. And some of us, because we're so afraid of failing, we will never go through that. We're like, oh, if I'm not good at it, I'm just going to stop. I tried once and I failed and then we give up. But friends, if you want to get better at something, this is one of the lessons. You will be bad at it. You're going to suck it. You're going to be below average. You're going to be mediocre. And the people who truly succeed in this life at anything are the people who understand that. And that's why they work so hard. They work so hard because they know they are bad at it. They know they're mediocre. And they keep pushing through. And friends, at the end of the day, we hear all of this. And, you know, for me, this was uh, part of the story for me. Remember, I told you about me as a pastor. I used to think I was the exception in so many ways. I got really lucky. My first uh, uh, position as a pastor, as a youth pastor, the ministry grew overnight. And the reason why is because a lot of people invested in that ministry before I came. When I came, I came at the right time. They're ready for growth, and I just rode that wave. So what happens to my ego? (laughs) I think I'm this awesome pastor. I'm like, oh my gosh, being a pastor is so easy. It's one of the worst things that's happened to me as a pastor because I had a false sense of confidence of how good I was. So I came here to Michigan, thought I could do the exact same thing, and the ministry didn't grow. You know, and I was trying to build a brand new thing in our college ministry, and people didn't come. At least not at first. It took a while. And what I hear from so many pastors is that I hear them say that it takes about five years before your ministry will truly grow in any substantive way. You know the average lifespan of most pastors? Less than five years. So what happens? They struggle They see how hard it is to grow that ministry. They get discouraged and they say, I'm a failure. And they leave before five years is up. But what everyone says is that that's just the natural lifespan. That's the process. You are not the exception. And so very few people will get that period where it just grows right away. And if it grew right away, it's because someone else invested that time. You just got lucky, right? And you are reaping something that you did not sow. And friends, for me... Um, one of the big areas of my life that I did not understand that I was not the exception was spiritual growth. I have heard so many messages from people who say, oh, just believe in Jesus. I heard so many messages where they they discount works, right? They say, don't read your Bible. Well, no one says don't read your Bible. But the kind of the message that I would hear is you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to spend time with God. This is very popular nowadays because we live in a very busy culture. That message preaches. People eat that stuff up. They're like, oh my gosh, I can have easy Christianity. But the thing is, if you look at the history of the church, the history of saints, there was no such thing as easy Christianity. You look at all these people who had robust spiritual lives, who had fantastic relationships with God, who had active prayer lives, They did not skip the line. They were not the exception. They read their Bibles. They spent time with God. They prayed. And this was one of the things that I didn't understand. So 
a few years ago, I was about to burn out. After thinking that I should be this great pastor, and I wasn't, <laughs> I had to do a lot of soul searching. And one of the things that happened in my soul searching was my spiritual life had not been developed. So many times I thought about doing quiet times, and I would do like really quick quiet times, like 30 seconds or less. I'm like, okay, done, check. And what ended up happening was I found out that I, my soul was really bare. It was really shallow. And I was not deep. My faith was not that deep. I could hide it. Oh my gosh, I could hide it. You know, I could come up here and do the Pastor Steve thing and act very spiritual. But inside, man, I was struggling. So many times, man, you know, my anger, my anxiety, my depression, it would catch up with me. And the thing that has helped me in the last two years is learning this difficult truth. It's not sexy doesn't sell bestsellers, but it is the truth, friends. This is the truth. You cannot skip the line when it comes to spiritual growth. If you want a deep spiritual life, you got to show up and you got to spend time with God. There's no other way to do it. Friends, it is not about earning God's favor, but just think about a robust relationship. Have you ever had a robust relationship with somebody that you spent no time with? It's never going to happen. You're not going to have a best friend that you don't spend time with. How are you going to be best friends with God, with Jesus? How are you going to know God if you spend no time with him? And so this is one of the things that I learned. You can't skip the line, and there's no cheating in this, right? And so I would have one-minute quiet times, and surprise, surprise, I had a very shallow spiritual life. And so I made a vow um, a couple years ago, more than two years ago, and I said, I'm going to spend 30 minutes with God every single day. And for the most part, four or five times a week, I have done that. And now it has become indispensable to my spiritual life. And one of the things I wrote in my journal, because I knew enough to say this, I said, Steve, no going into this. You are going to be bad at it at first. That was the most important thing I did. I've tried that before. I've tried having my quiet time before. Like, believe me, I've tried many, many times and I've failed. But the thing that made the difference this time was when I wrote those words in my journal, you will be bad at it. There's no getting around that. Friends, if you want to be good at something, you want to do something difficult, if you want to do something that is worth doing, you must acknowledge and embrace this truth. You will be bad at it at first. It's going to suck. It's not going to be as fun as it will be in a few months. Spending time with God to me now is essential. It is the most important thing I do. It's not just because I'm a pastor. It is so life-giving. When I don't do it, I crave it. I'm like, oh my gosh, when, I, when can I go to the park and spend some time with the Lord? But it was not like that for the first two weeks. But most people I know, when they try a new spiritual regimen, what happens? You do it one week, and you're not very good at it. You know, you nod off, you lose your concentration. And Pastor, friends, Pastor Steve was exactly the same way. I was exactly the same way. My first two weeks were horrible. I fell asleep every single time I tried to have a quiet time. But I had to keep reminding myself, you know what? This is part of the process. I'm going to be bad at it, but it's worth it. And you know what? It is. I want to end this message with this simple thing, friends. You are not the exception in more ways than one. One of the ways you are not the exception is in the way God loves you. This comes from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one who will scarcely... Uh, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, what is that saying? While you're a sinner, while you were weak, while you were a failure, while you were mediocre, while you were subpar, God loved you so much that he loved you in the most exceptional way. It tells us that. This is not an ordinary kind of love. You love people who are love-worthy. You love people who are exceptional. You love people who deserve that love. But that was not the case with Jesus. He loved you so much that even when you were the greatest failure in your life, he loved you exactly the same, and he loved you with an extraordinary kind of love. It says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. There's something funny happening in this, friends. It's saying, so if we were enemies of God and he reconciled us, he made us one with him, how much more is he now going to save you? And for many of us, we think of those two two things as being one and the same, but they are not. What, if you've heard my messages over the last couple of years, you know that when the Bible talks about salvation, it is not just talking about going to heaven. Nowhere in the history of the human vocabulary outside of evangelical Christianity does salvation mean that. When you're a slave, it doesn't mean you just go to heaven when you die. When you save a slave, it means not being a slave anymore. When you save a person whose life is shipwrecked, someone who feels like a failure, someone who's a sinner, what would that mean in this context? It would mean not being a sinner anymore, not being a failure anymore. That's how God wants to save you. He doesn't want to just save you for the afterlife. He wants to save you for this life too. And for that, you are going to need to know the exceptional love of God. This is one of our fears. We think that when we fail, it means something about me. I am a failure and I'm unworthy of love. The message of the cross is no matter what you do, God will love you. You are not the exception. You cannot escape his love, but you must accept it. And if you accept that exceptional love, then you can be freed, not to be stuck in that cycle, being afraid if you fail or if you succeed. Because people will applaud you. Oh, you're good because you succeeded. Oh, you're bad because you failed. But Jesus is saying, no matter what happens, I love you. You can keep coming back to that. And now you can live a life freed from that cycle. So can we have the the praise team come up? And and I want us, friends, to just do some soul searching. Where is this message hitting you? I got to tell you, friends, it's not easy to hear, is it? Because you've been told your whole life, you're special, you're the exception, you should be the exception. But many of the things that God is asking you to do are both exceptional and ordinary. These are the best things in life. When God asks you to forgive someone, to love somebody, we think that's not spectacular enough. Oh, I need to go and do something really great. Friends, that's a great thing. Call someone up who maybe you haven't talked to in a while. Because ordinary people, most people won't do that. It's beneath them. When you love somebody who's not being normally loved in this world, we are living out the exceptional love of Jesus Christ.
There's not going to be a, a million Facebook posts about that act. But let me assure you, friends, that in its own way is exceptional. That is building the kingdom of God. God has put eternity in your hearts, not just fame for this world. And eternity is going to be built on the kingdom of God. Us learning to love and forgive and to do ordinary things. When you spend time with your family today, that may not be spectacular. Yes, we're going to see a lot of Facebook posts about, you know, Happy Father's Day and things like that. But you may think that's no big deal. Friends, you're building the kingdom of God. When you spend time with God, it doesn't have to be a spectacular thing. There won't be fireworks because you had a quiet time. But that is an exceptional thing. You are building the kingdom of God. You're going to have to keep building that every day. But friends, God loves you. He's not going to give up on you. But we need to make this resolution. We're not going to give up on him when it gets tough, when it gets difficult, when we don't see results. We are going to keep going. Because that's what it takes. That's what it's about. We're going to show up every day and receive that exceptional love. Sometimes it starts to feel ordinary for us. We forget how exceptional the love of Jesus is. But friends, there's nothing ordinary about it. And it will give you the strength to live this ordinary life with eternity in your hearts. So whatever way you let to pray, you feel led to pray. Friends, why don't we just pray right now and I want to pray for you as well. So let's pray. Maybe there's something you want to say to God right now. Maybe there's something that you just need to get straight with God. Let's do that right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your extraordinary love. To ordinary people like us, that's not a bad thing. We are not the exception, Lord. We need your love. And we're going to go through life and we're going to fail and we're going to struggle. It's going to be a grind sometimes, God. But you will never give up on us. You will never stop loving us. Your love will always be available to pick us up, Lord. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God. That we get to live this life with you, get to experience the joy of struggle and difficulty and learning and process, God. Thank you, God, that you will be with us every step of that journey, God. Thank you, God, for our families and our friends and for our church communities that we get to do this with. Lord, may we be fully present for the lives that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.